Well, it's great to see you dads and moms here and everybody else here today. Thank you, Olive Branch, for being as being here as we've been working on this series called Parenting Through the Phases. And since we began, you guys have pulled out five marbles from that jar as five weeks have gone on. And now we are diving into uh, the final conversation for this series. We've talked about the various phases from preschool to uh, all the way through to high school and these four different phases, along with four different conversations. We started off with the idea of health and how we need to talk about being healthy and what that means in a, in a biblical context. We talked about passing on the faith. Then we looked last week at technology and scared ourselves to death, right? That kind of thing. And then uh, now we're going to talk about that other thing that scares most, uh, most parents to death, and that is the conversation about sex. And so this morning, if you have a child that you don't want to have that conversation with right now in the room today, um, we have a children's ministry that's ready and available to to connect with your kiddo. If they're too young to understand it, that's okay. Uh, you're good. But we just want to let you know that this is a bit of a PG to PG-13 level, so we want to make sure that that's, that's clear. And if you don't want to have some awkward conversations you're not ready for yet, uh, make sure that your kiddos are on their way. But that being said, I would like to pray to kind of close out the series as, as we uh, join together. So would you bow your heads with me? Father, thank you so much for your word, and thank you for all this opportunity to kind of apply scripture in a theological manner to our parenting and to our grandparenting and to our influencing of kids. And God, we thank you that you give us a community and a church that encourages and trains us in these things so that you uh, can work through us and give us a life that honestly honors you. As we dive into this today, would you just give us wisdom and give us strength and guidance as we Seek you in the midst of this very uh, kind of tumultuous conversation. Pray you'd bless it in the name of Jesus. Amen. For those of you who may not know, I have four children, uh, a daughter and uh, three boys after that. And uh, mine are all now kind of in these last three phases, only one left in the uh, elementary school phase. And what's interesting for us is we've been, we've been homeschooling. So that means we actually uh, sew our own clothes, make our own, uh, make our own things, and we actually grow our own cotton in the backyard of a suburban home. No, uh, actually for us, it means that there's a lot of case as a pastor and a pastor's family with pastor's kids that we actually live and dwell in a bit of a bubble, uh, especially since we do, do homeschooling and we've been doing that, that um, we realized our curriculums are Christian curriculums, our conversations are Christian conversations. And so my wife took it upon herself to purchase a curriculum that would help them understand the secular world. And that curriculum is every season of the Gilmore Girls. So... She actually will tell you the event, um, everything she's ever learned about social, uh, about, the, about the secular world, she learned from the Gilmore Girls. It's kind of a joke in our house. Any Gilmore Girl fans out there, anybody who actually likes Gilmore Girls, less in this service than any other. And uh, still, no men have raised their hand. So, uh, no, it's, it's a, a cutesy little comedy dra uh, kind of drama set up in a small town called Stars Hollow where uh, the mom, Lorelai, is raising her daughter, Rory. Uh, she's a single mom, so it's kind of this tense situation with her parents who are rich and live off in, I believe it's Hartford, Connecticut. So it's this kind of socioeconomic struggle and all these kind of different things. But in general, it, it's, a, it's a kind of a high, fast-paced comedy, but it's Definitely secular. In fact, some of our some of the things that happen during the show is is clearly that they date and then they wind up having sex later in the date, or there's hookup things and situations. And so invariably we have to pause and we have to stop and talk to our kids about this and go like, look, we think it's funny, but this isn't what we really want to be focused on. And then we kind of move on. And and one of the oddest things about the show 
is there's this girl named Lane, and Lane is raised by a very strong Korean mother who is a Seventh-day Adventist, and she is uh, kind of restricted in all that she can do. And she's the one character that kind of saves herself from marriage and doesn't have sex before she's married. And when she finally comes back from her honeymoon, she basically leans into her best friend, Rory, and says, you, you, you can stop the, all the conspiracy now. And she's like, what are you talking about? Like, I understand sex is awful. I know why people try to make it sound great, but it's, it's horrible. And this whole thing is this spoof on the fact that basically in the secular world's mind, sex is great and then you get married and then it's awful from that point on. And what's odd is actually they're wrong. All the sociological data that is coming out in the last 10 years repeatedly is showing not only is the people who are married, the longer they're married, the more satisfied they are in their sex life, not to mention they have more of it and, more and, and better, but it's also the more religious you are, the more and better it is. And so that you are actually sitting in the one location with the one great blessed, you, know, you got the idea, but the secular world doesn't, doesn't see this. They don't teach it this way. They don't engage it this way. In fact, they are love to talk about sex. They love to talk about sex in a certain way. And yet they're not experiencing the best portions of it according to the sociology. And yet the church, we don't like talking about it. We're scared of the subject. In fact, I've talked to enough adults and I've talked to enough of your children to know that this is one of those subjects that many of us are stinking scared to engage that we are nervous, we back off, we intend well, and we get through two sentences and we're like, good talk, and we walk away. And this is the problem that we, we need to address because we need to have conversations throughout the phases with our children, with our grandchildren, when it comes to the conversation about sex. I, I love that last night I had this message and I said that line and um, at the end of the service, this guy walks up to me and he says, well, um, somebody took you seriously today. I'm like, what are you talking about? He's like, yeah, my grandma leaned over and said, I'll buy the book if you want to have the conversation. And this is with his grandson, uh, her grandson sitting right there in the service. He's like, it's okay, grandma. I know what we're talking. He's like a college student. So it's kind of an interesting, <laughs> interesting setup. But here's the point, and I love that her initiative because she was taking seriously the fact that you and I, as the parents, we need to be the expert about sex for your child. You need to be the sexpert, okay? That's the bad dad joke for the day. So there's your Father's Day dad joke. But you need to be the expert about sex for your child because if you're not, somebody will. Somebody will step in. If you're not in first, and typically the one who's in first is seen as the expert, guaranteed the culture is ready to be first. Guaranteed Google is ready to be first. Facebook is ready to be first. YouTube is ready to be first. Or a California curriculum or something else is ready to be first. And we need to realize the job is given to you as the parents to have these conversations. We see this all the way back at the beginning of our series where we laid out this verse called the Shema. It's this conversation that God was having with Israel and he tells them to teach them diligently to your children, to talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. And notice the two points here, that you, that's you parents, because you're gonna teach your children are to teach them. Well, what's the them? The them is the commandments of God. The them is those things God has instructed you. Now, if you've ever attempted to read through your Bible, 
and you've started in Genesis, like my son Nate did, and you start reading long enough, eventually you realize God has a lot to talk about when it comes to the idea of sex. In fact, my son Nate got to roughly around Lot and his daughters. And if you've ever read that chapter, uh, you know it's pretty gross. And he goes, Dad, do I have to keep reading this? I'm like, no, son, you can skip to the New Testament now. That's okay. We don't need to go through all the other oddities that are coming in the book of Genesis. Let alone when you get to the book of Leviticus, there's an entire chapter laying out all the different odd ways human beings have attempted to have sex with all kinds of things and all kinds of people. God has a lot to say about this subject, and he put it in his law, and he says, hey, parents, you need to teach these laws, these rules to your children, and you teach them diligently. This isn't a one-time birds and bees talk. This is when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise. Throughout the phases of life and the rhythm of life, we need to be having many conversations when it comes to sex. Some of you are going like, I do not feel prepared for this today. Um, I wanted the good old beat me down Father's Day message. What is this? This is an encouragement to you guys that you can indeed do this. I'm going to give you a framework that, you, that we as a church should begin to teach our children and our teenagers. And I believe it's a whole church thing. Because my wife, when she talks about where she got her wonderful vision and understanding of sex, it wasn't just her parents. It was from her youth pastor and the people who surrounded her and discipled her. She had gathered it from so many locations. And when we do child dedications on the stage and we hold children up and I ask you guys to stand and say, will you stand with these families? This is one of the places we need to stand together with the same vision about sex that the word of God has given to us so that we can, in, so we can beat back in some way the false messaging that this world is giving us all about sex, including our children. And so what should we do? First of all, I want to teach you guys that we need to teach them that God made it. That seems weird that I have to say that, but it's true. I mean, God didn't just like create things and it starts evolving and suddenly he looks down and things are having sex and he goes, oh, that was an unforeseen circumstance. No, God actually planned it. He invented it. He had thought through it. He knew what it was. In fact, you can see his intentionality and his desire to put it in the creation in a specific passage in Genesis chapter 2. If you have a Bible, would you please grab it? You can open it up there. And I, I, this is one of those passages I think we should all have marked in some form, either with a line down the side, highlighted, underlined, or whatever, because these passages are critical to an understanding of God's design and intent for this thing that we call sex. And it's found here in Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 21. Now, Adam has just been looking at all the other animals and naming them and stuff like that. And now God comes to him. And so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. The rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Now, we can pause here for a minute because I, there's all kinds of like, is this real? Is this history? Let's just take it for now as an account of what has gone on, that the Hebrews are saying, this is how God created humanity and what God was doing in his intention. And notice that he doesn't say that he took a piece of the skull for, and created the, created the woman. He doesn't take a piece from the foot and create the woman so that the woman would be over man or man would be over the woman. No, he takes the rib. Preferably the one thing from the side nearest to the other. So there's an equality that's going on in the text. There's a, there's a very clear male and female is, is are equal partners in this relationship. Now, 
It moves forward into this. Now, God brings the woman as the man's waking up. He sees the woman and he said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man, this is the conclusion, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. We call that marriage. And they shall become one flesh. We call that sex. And the man and the, well, his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And so this is in an ideal situation. God created sex as a response to the marriage for the intention of the male and female come together to produce a family. And so now we begin to see that God's situation of sex is put with a purpose. You see, we need to teach this purpose. We need to bring this purpose together. Because honestly, we miss the purpose so often. And it's found in this text. So you don't have to go any further to find the purpose. But the purpose of sex is actually to value rightly the spouse and to produce a family. Take a look as we look at it again. The man is, is, has, the woman is being brought to the man. Very, very vivid scene of the God walking this woman towards him. And he says, at last, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. He says, this, this, is, this is my identical. This is the one that connects with me. This isn't some other animal or thing. This is a woman. In fact, he says, this is Isha, for he was made out of Ish. He names himself after her in a sense. And these two terms are related. And we understand that why women are called women, right? I mean, when the man first saw the woman, he went, whoa, man, that's why you got your name. Because that's how we as men, we respond. Ha <laughs> ha. And so women are, and for men, are, it's, it's powerful. Oftentimes men will value a woman by the visual before they move to the deeper portions. Oftentimes women will be valued by being seen before you move to the deeper portions. There's something about the visual attestation that Adam is doing here that's connecting to the valuing. He's saying, this is me, me, we are one. This is, this is right. And he pronounces this value. He brings about this very key value. And it's really important because with sex comes so much value-laden thinking. There is a deep sense of vulnerability when it comes to this concept of sex because you're naked. Now, being naked is not only a, a sense of where I'm disarmed, I'm completely hard, you know, I'm at, I'm at the mercy of the other person. But psychologically, nakedness means being vulnerable. That's why you have bad dreams in junior high of being naked and going to school, and it's, hor it's horrifying. There is something about the sense of being naked in public that you're exposed. Everybody sees you. To be naked psychologically is to actually have no things hidden from anyone. And these concepts are combined in the Bible. So that when the authors, the geniuses who wrote this are trying to tell us is that God means when you are before someone, you're giving yourself to them. What a weird language we use. That kind of value-laden concept in the background, I love to use, I had asked my youth ministry and my students this question. I'd say, so guys, I just have a quick question. What's wrong with prostitution? I mean, come on, really? It's just a service and you can pay money for it or whatever. And we would get into the conversation and ultimately it came down to, look, ladies, here's the, here's the reason why. When you avail yourself to somebody, you are worth so much more than a few hundred dollars to give your whole self to them. 
And so they'd be like, yeah, that's, that's clear. And they would understand that doesn't seem right to just be like, yeah, I'm just going to give myself to somebody so you can give me money. That's just, oh, that's icky. That's weird in some ways. And so then I'd say, okay, so the question that I often hear in youth ministry is, well, how many dates do you have to go on before you start to have sex? Well, it depends on what price of a prostitute you are, is what I would say. Because if you add up the dates to a numerical amount, you can get a pretty much the price that you're willing to take. Add up the time. Well, no, it's got to be the right person at the right time when they really love me. Well, you know what I say to a guy who says I love you? Prove it. Because love is a cheap word to use, and many men use it as a manipulation. Sometimes it's out of passion for whatever you're feeling and an immaturity of love. But when we see this reality, at some cases, you're willing to avail yourself over words. And what we need to realize is we want to value people rightly. So what is the value of every woman in this room? What is the value of every man in this room? The value God put on you is the value of a son hanging on a cross. God said, my life for yours. That's how much you're worth. And so when we stand at an altar, or we stand in front of a group of our loved ones who, who are family members and friends, and I faced my wife and I had my pastor here who was represent, sorry, I'm on the wrong side, represent my represent God for us. When we stood there and I said, My life for yours, your life for mine. And not just a little bit of my life, not just the good parts of my life. No, my life when I'm sick, your life when you're sick. I'm giving all my life to you all the way to the end. That's the vow. Now sex is available. I valued you rightly and you valued me rightly. And that creates a synergy of value that enables the, person, the people to come together. He said, this is flesh of my flesh. This is part of me. You are valued as I am valued. They came together. And then what comes out of a marriage is that a male and a female come together. And I understand our culture thinks differently about marriage. We talk about God's view of marriage and vision of marriage. It is between a male and a female. And they come together into one flesh. They're designed to connect, to become one, and to create actually a one flesh. If everything works correctly and, and the fall is here so this doesn't happen for all families, I understand that. But God's intention is that suddenly... From that one flesh union comes one flesh. You ever looked at your kid and gone, holy cow, they look like me. Holy cow, they look like my wife or my husband. Oh my gosh. And then you're always like, you know what, that bad part, that's from your side of the family. You know that, that whole thing, right? It's because literally your one flesh is running around in front of you, bugging you and pressing your buttons. Yes. But it's the one flesh. And so what God has said at the beginning is if we understand the purpose and we want to teach the purpose, here's the purpose, that sex comes with sex and marriage come together along with children. But you know what our culture has done? We've split the three apart so that you can get married and you don't have to have sex, which is really weird, but that, that's, that's kind of argued out there right now. It's not even good, so don't even worry about it. Or you can have sex without marriage. You can have sex without babies. And you can have babies without sex, thanks to technology. And so these three things have no correlation anymore, but were originally always connected. Remove the technology, remove the things, you wind up with these three things naturally being connected since the beginning. And what we have then is the intention that God has this wonderful, beautiful thing called sex to value the other person rightly, to form a family, and it is good in there. In fact, what I want to say is that we need to teach them that God loves sex. 
I mean, he loved it so much, he wrote a whole book about it called The Song of Solomon. He loved it so much, his first blessing over humanity was this. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. That's a lot of sex. (laughs) Think about it. You got to fill a whole earth. What we see here is that God is not opposed to the idea of sex. God is very much for the idea of sex. You know, you know what else God is very much for? Gravity. It's like, well, what does gravity have to do with this? Now think about it for a minute. God loves gravity. God loves the fact that gravity keeps you in your chair. God loves that gravity keeps you on the earth. God loves that gravity enables us to build things. And gravity is a powerful force and an intentional force that if it wasn't here, we'd be floating off into space somewhere. And we wouldn't exist. God loves gravity. You know when he hates gravity? When we use it to kill ourselves by jumping off a roof. We use it to harm somebody else. God doesn't like gravity at those points. In a very real sense, the power of sex is also has limitations. Just as gravity has its limitations. Guys, God doesn't create a force as powerful as sex and not put it in its right container. He doesn't just unleash something to go crazy on us and just go like, I don't know what to do with this thing. God's very intentional. We want to help our children see that sex is powerful within it and God loves it, but God doesn't make more of it than it should be, and neither should we. I remember back in the 90s, I had just come to Jesus, uh, and uh, it was an interesting time period. At the late 90s, if you, if you were a Christian at the time period, man, everything was about two things. It was either about Jesus coming back in the rapture or Y2K, right? Those two things were all over the place. Man, the world was going to blow up one way or the other. And I can remember sitting in my bathroom praying, God, please don't come back yet. I haven't had sex. <laughs> okay, any other teenagers with me on that one? I mean, let's just be honest. I had a few guys, brave souls, back on, uh, on Friday, uh, Saturday night raise their hands and say, yep, that was me, yes. I- I'm not alone. I knew a lot of guys who that was our prayer. Jesus, no rapture yet, no rapture yet. And so what we want to realize, though, is that this was because I had bought into a cultural lie. The cultural lie was you can't live without this. If you don't have sex, you're going to shrivel up into a little prune and you're just going to be like this thing that can't possibly live. And I really believe that's what our culture tries to insist. You can't live without this. And man, that has seeped into the church. It's seeped into our children. It's seeped into all kinds of places. And it's a lie. Do we realize that we're just putting sex as an idol then? We're turning it into something that's not. We're making it opposed to God. It is a powerful thing in its position, but it's not everything in life. In fact, you can live a great life and never have had sex. John the Baptist lived an amazing life and never had sex. He changed the world. Paul changed the world. You have church fathers and mothers throughout the history that have done amazing things and done great things for the world, and they never had sex. Besides, you and I model our lives as Christians after a man who never had sex, namely Jesus. And Jesus shows us that actually what's going on in our world is that we've been mystified and obsessed by something that honestly is a side note to the love of God, the love of others, and the explosion of that to the world around us. Jesus Christ himself didn't have this experience and lived one of the most powerful lives that is still talked about to this date. And what I want to impress upon us is that we can't get our children into the mindset that, well, you got to have it, so you got to get married. No, because some of them won't get married, and they're still needing to live an incredibly powerful life for God. And they can do that. 
But if we set up these things as an idol, what will go on is there will be lots of misuses because you can't live without it. And so we need to go on to teach about those misuses. We need to teach how sex can be misused by humanity. And when that happens and, and sex is misused by humanity, we want to talk about that because there's lots of misuses inside and outside uh, just uh, of the church, inside and outside of the culture, inside and outside of marriage. There's, there's all kinds of abuses. But sexual immorality is any sex outside of marriage. You name it. Now, at this point, we get into some culturally dangerous territory. But the bottom line is that your children one day may come up to you and tell you, hey, Dad, I, I, I'm really struggling. I like this boy. And it's your son you're talking to. There may be situations where you have to explain things of bisexuality, where you may have to engage in conversations over, over bestiality, which is in the Bible and coming, by the way. There's all kinds of things out there that our children are exposed to and thinking about and we need to talk about because here's the thing, though. We don't need to make them feel shameful that they're struggling with temptation this way. Can we just be honest? There's nobody in this room who hasn't struggled with some form of sexual temptation. Nobody. I mean, I know we're all holy Christians and all, and we've never struggled with anything so depraved as sex. Yeah, right. In fact, the Bible says otherwise. It says, no temptation is overtaking you that is not common to man. Nothing that you've heard in the last 20 years is unique or new. Maybe we were scared to talk about it, but it's not unique. It's not new. These temptations have been with us since the beginning of time. It is common to man. It is common to struggle over all these forms of sexual temptation. From pornography to self-loathing to self about your body to, um, to immodesty, you name it. The Bible's got it all in there. There are all kinds of forms of sexual sin and sexual temptation that exist. And what we need to tell our kids is, yep, welcome to life. I struggle too. You know what you need to do? No, press into the Lord. You see, here's the problem with the lie. You, got, you can't live without it. If you, think you can't live with, if you think you can't live without it, you miss out on the rest of the passage. Where it says God is faithful. He won't let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape. That you may be able to endure it. And what he's offering is he says, if you think there's no escape, if you think you can't live without it, what you're going to run into is you won't wait long enough for God to show up and give you the power and the ability to stand through the temptation and move on to something greater. And there are many people who catch themselves in sexual immorality and wind up putting themselves in danger because we don't wait long enough. In fact, for our children, we want to help them in this self-control. We want to point them to the Lord. We want to enable them to know that he gives them a way of escape because we want them to be sex have sexual integrity. I really believe that's what we as Christians would long for our children. Amen? But that sexual integrity cannot be before you. It must be before God. This is a small misstep that so many of us make. I have talked to so many children or students over the years that have come up to me and they're just feeling horrible and they're just like, yeah, I mean, uh, we, I messed up. We had sex last night. I'm like, oh, okay. And it's like, he's willing to tell me. I'm like, dude, just don't tell my parents. I'm like, what? That's where I just drew the line. I'm like, time out. So you want me to teach you how to be a hypocrite? They're like, what? I'm like, because you know what a hypocrite is? A hypocrite isn't somebody who's inconsistent. A hypocrite is somebody who claims I'm pure and I'm good and I'm holy and behind the scene, they're not at all. And too often these children have been taught to be hypocrites to their parents because they want to be pure before their parents when they forgot something. God was there when they were messing it up anyway. See, integrity is what you do when only God is looking. 
And when we have an understanding of integrity in that way, suddenly it's not about what I'm doing, nobody's going to catch me. It's about the fact that God's already seen me. And that what I want my children to be able to do is march off into life knowing that it's between them and God. Because one day I'm not going to be around in college when they're older. It's going to be them and God. And they have to have a sexual integrity before God so they can love him. And so that whole question is how far is too far? Too far is when you know God's displeased. Well, how far is too far? Too far is when you're not valuing the other person according to the value that is right for them, your life for theirs. Love them as Jesus Christ intended. You know, how far is too far? Well, just so you know, it's when you harm yourself because sexual sin is one of those things that actually harms you. Paul put it this way. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but sexual immoral person sins against his own body. Fascinatingly, what we've discovered through neuroscience is that the chemicals and the hormones that we produce when we are engaged in sexual intercourse or acts that are a stimul simulate the same thing is it creates a bonding mechanism. And there are ruts that are created in the brain with pornography that cause you to be addicted to objects and even, even to pictures and all these different things. If you're in the hookup culture, what occurs is that it actually literally debilitates the ability to have a successful marriage for a longer time period. Because you're giving out this chemical that is supposed to bond with the other person. And every time you leave, you pull it apart and tear it off so that their bonding mechanism results in you actually being a more crass and callous person. You lose ability to empathize. You sin against yourself. You harm yourself. This isn't a game that is simply easy. Neuro, this, this kind of understanding is growing as we're seeing what the chemicals and the reactions are in all these effects. If you want some of the more information, go back to our explicit series. We talked about the effects of pornography. But when we see this, what we have to understand is that we're not just sinning against somebody else, devaluing them to the, low, to the level of less than my life for yours. We're not just insulting God, we're harming ourselves. And so we want to flee from this. We want to help our children do that by teaching them these frameworks. Now, if you're a single parent, you're going like, this is great, but I have a, if you're a single mom with a son or you're a single dad with a daughter, this is at the point where I would say you need to enlist the church in your age. You need to enlist uncles and aunts and grandparents because this can get really difficult, especially dads. If, you have a, if you're a single dad with a daughter and your daughter is hitting her period and you're just like, I don't know. I mean, that's difficult. So you want to have a woman who's able to help walk your daughter through this stuff. So at this point, as single parents and as those with, with children, we want to be working together in this as a body. We want, to, we want to see all of us stepping in. And we want to do this at every phase. And I mean every phase. Our first phase, again, is birth to preschool. And at this phase, you're going to talk about sexuality. But it's not going to look the same. You're like, really? We're going to talk about sex with little kids? No, no, hold on. What you're going to start with is basically this. Let them know that God made boys and girls. What I mean by that is this. Little kids are curious about their anatomy. It's the bottom line. By the time they're big enough to go to the bathroom on their own, they're looking at themselves like this, or they're sitting down on the toilet looking at themselves, and they're going, what's that? What's that? Your little boy walks up. Why do I have nipples? And you're like, what? what? I don't know how to answer this question. All my boys ask me that question, and I know the answer now. I'm not telling you. So the... Uh, <laughs> But what's fascinating is they, they ask different questions. They're like, you know, what is this and what is that? Why do I have a belly button? Well, that's when you were attached to your mommy. It's how you got fed when you were in her, when you were in her tummy. And then my, my youngest one would go like, how was I not digested if I was in mommy's tummy? You know, that was like a great question. I'm like, oh, okay, genius. So look, when you're in this section explaining anatomy, here's the thing. You need to use the real words. 
They need to know what the actual body part is. I mean, your woo-woo isn't going to work all that's for the rest of their life, okay? And, and here's the point. When they're, the woo-woo isn't helpful when I talk to police officers who say they've met people, children who have been abused. Children need to know the body parts so that when, if something happens, they can identify exactly where they were touched and how it was touched. And so having your children understanding their anatomy is a very important aspect. Second, it takes away the shame. Yes, they are private, but they're not shameful. God made these parts. They have intention. And you need to help them know that one day they'll be old enough to understand that. But right now, they're good for going to the bathroom and people shouldn't touch those. But you need to know that's not your woo-woo. That is your whatever. And guess what? At sure, if you haven't helped them know what the anatomy is by high school, then walking around talking about their woo-woo is a bad idea anyway. <laughs> and if you're an adult and you still don't know what the body parts are, I mean, come on. Like, I'd tell you to Google it, but that'd be a bad idea. <laughs> Just ask your parents. That's, that's a good one. So <laughs> the point is simply that, guys, at that age, they need to know what is going on with their body and what it is. Now, when you move to elementary, now you're going to get a little bit more specific. You want to introduce them to basic sexuality. They need to know what the body parts do. They understand how a baby is formed. And you go, really? We start at eight. And you're like, eight? Yes, eight. I even think that may be a little late, but eight is, is kind of a recommendation. Roughly about eight when a kid can walk out on a farm or in an ancient society in springtime and go, what are the cows doing? Oh, they're wrestling, son. Oh, why are the dogs wrestling too? Why are the horses? And what's the, what's the, what's the? And everybody, and suddenly, several months later, all these other little babies are showing up. Oh, we used to call them the birds and the bees. Now, we live in a suburban territory, so unless you're at Knott's Berry Farm like my kids were, and the duck attacks the other duck, and they're like, what are they doing? Oh, yeah, that's a different scenario. We need to induce the conversation. And that means you need to walk in. He says, have you ever wondered where babies come from? Yeah, I have. Okay, well, we need to talk about that right now. And you begin that conversation. You begin to journey through this about how things work. And, and you want to help them understand what's going on and where babies come from. And guaranteed, if your child is anything like every child I've heard of, they all go, ew. They think it's icky. That's gross. If your child looks at you and says, oh, yeah, I know that. Be worried. Because it's likely this is, there may be, if a child's sexual drive has already been turned on at the age of eight, there's likely abuse somewhere in the background. Children's sex drives do not turn on naturally. They are turned on and then they never turn off. And so why we say talk about it early is so you can catch the incidences of potential abuse early. So you can find out quickly before it continues and, and spirals into worse situations. Talking early is deathly important, and you need to be involved with that. And so, yeah, if they're going to feel like it's icky and you want to give them the invitation, yeah, ask questions. We're always available. You don't talk, we always said don't talk about this with your younger siblings. And, and so just this is a conversation with mommy and daddy, and we want to make sure that this is right. You don't talk about this with your friends. So you don't run to school and say, hey, guess what my parents talked about? You don't do that. And so we want to do that, plus rightly explain some of the dangers. It was roughly around 8 that I sat my boys down. I said, listen, you know, we don't go running off on the internet wherever we want to go because there's some really bad pictures out there that I don't want you running into at your age. And they're like, well, like what kind of bad pictures, Dad? And I'm like, well, there are pictures of really violent things that are really awful. 
And there are pictures of naked ladies out there and people having sex. And they're like, that's gross. I'm like, yeah. And I'm like, when you see those, you can't unsee those. And so my kids immediately began to understand why we have our technology limited. And, what, and, and then I would enlist them. I'd say, you know, if you see something and you know your brothers are here, help me and keep your brothers away. Because my goal in this territory is not to open that door. They're going to eventually run into it, but let's extend that as far as we can. And so we talk very plainly about these things. Hey, if somebody invites you to a chat room on another site outside of the, outside of the video game you're playing, the answer is No. Hey, if somebody ever contacts you, walks up to you and says, hey, take a look at this picture on, your, on their phone, the answer is no, even if it's a friend at recess. The reason why is there's all kinds of access, and we want to help our children understand this is a valuable thing for marriage. This isn't something we just play with. It can harm you. It's a very powerful force. And so we want to take, but we want to talk positively about it, about why it's good and how it's good. And Oftentimes at a young age, they really don't want to hear that it's good, but it's helpful. They're sort of like, no, it's icky. I say, yeah, one day you won't think it's icky. And then, yes, I always think it's icky. No, you won't. It will change because trust me, you'll find out middle school is coming. And that's exactly when all the parents start going, I'm so scared, middle school, right? Middle school is, is that time where we really have to dive in. Now you're talking seriously about sex because things are changing. And I mean changing. Your little cute kid who got all sweaty when he ran around, now he stinks and he doesn't want to go take a bath, right? He's got hair where you never had hair in locations. He's stretching out, he's growing muscles, he's hit puberty. He thinks it's cool to have a really ugly looking mustache on the top of his lip, right? Your daughter is, you need to talk to your boy before that phase starts hitting. Your daughter's different. Daughters, um, to be honest, God kind of set up an awesome opportunity through your first period to really begin that. Now, there's some cases where you need to induce that conversation because it may be super late in, in their life, maybe a late bloomer, as they called those. But those are oftentimes the great moments where you begin to step in as moms. You begin to talk about the purpose of this and where it goes and give it purpose, give it meaning. Don't make it disgusting, make it purposeful. Give it direction, empower, and enable this to be something that is understood in the way that God has designed and their value. And so you tie, you tie these pieces together. Yes, you talk about STDs. Yes, you talk about condoms as the parent. Did you want the school telling them about it? Do you want the friend introducing them to it? Because it's just going to be a balloon party favor if that happens. No, you should be the one introducing And here's why. And, I, and I'm dead serious. I believe that you as the parent should introduce the condom and why and what it's used for because I've met plenty of good little Christian kids, good little homeschooled Christian kids that are having sex like crazy. And nobody's taught them about condoms unless they found out from a friend. And I'd rather it come from a parent than come from another source. And that may be contrary, and you can, you can pray through that if you disagree with me, and that's okay. But I'm just telling you, as the youth pastor, yeah, this is a culture washed with sex. They're being touched and encouraged by it. And so it is a different thing, and we need to be ready. And we need to keep pointing it in the right directions. Finally, be a safe place for your kids to confess. This can be hard if your children walk up to you and tell you this is the, you know, I, I, I started dating a girl and we just had sex. That is a horribly hard thing to hear for some parents. But you need to be able to keep your cool and stay safe. You may need to bring in the youth pastor, bring in a friend, bring in somebody else to encourage and engage that. You need to have backup, get backup if you can't handle it. 
but be a safe place. And some of you are going, I can't. I'm a hypocrite. I can't tell my kids that, uh, that they can't have sex before they're married. I, I, didn't, I had sex before we were married, and uh, I, I can't tell them that. Yes, you can. Look, don't teach them to be a hypocrite by being a hypocrite. Don't act like you're godly and you did it all right so your kids think, oh, I didn't do it like my parents did. That's not, that's not sexual integrity for God. That's sexual integrity before you. No, this is the time where you lean in and you talk to your kid and you tell them, hey, hey, look, this is a powerful thing. You're going to struggle with it. You see, when two people are in proximity of each other geographically and you like them and there's a chemical enjoyment and you both have an intellectual enjoyment, you're talking about stuff and you are getting spiritual and you're praying about stuff, you're going to want to have sex. That's how God made you. As intimacy grows, the desire appears. And we need to tell our children this so it's not a surprising new thing out of nowhere. This is how we're designed. And it's not bad. It's what happens when you're intimate with someone, when you're intimate in geography, in intellectual, in, in, in intellect, in conversation, in, in spirituality, all that stuff. That desire appears. And so you need to be a safe place that they can come. When that's happening, you can come talk to me. If you messed up, you can come talk to me. And do you know why? Because I've struggled with the same thing. And I had to sit across from my son and tell him, yeah, your dad has struggled with pornography. Yes, even to the place where I went looking for it many times in my life. And you know what that did to him? He went like, oh, it, gave, it made it a serious thing because he thought, no, I never struggled. And I'm like, I talked to you about this because of the reality that I lived in the 90s and the early 2000s when there was no such thing as a filter or accountability. And you need to understand that this is powerful stuff. He's taken it far more serious since he heard that this is something that all of that adults struggle with. It's not a kid thing. You're affirming their, they're affirming their journey. You're empowering them to understand. Don't hide it. There's a right time to reveal this and lay it out and teach them from it. Because especially as you get into high school, they need to know that this is a real thing that you've wrestled with, that everybody's wrestling with, and that it's not just them. In fact, you're in an on-the-spot training at that point. You're going to be helping them. That's not how you treat a girl, son. Nope, that's not how you're going to, that's not how you're going to, um, you, you, you're just, that, that belongs in the bedroom of a married person, daughter, not in, not in public. I don't know what you're trying to, trying to give to everybody, but that's really for your husband. And that kind of conversations needs to come from dads and moms, and we need to talk about how far is too far, when no is no, when, when it's abuse and what it looks like, why drugs and alcohol and sex don't mix, and why if you're around drugs and alcohol, the, the rate of your, your chance of getting pregnant or to have or have been raped increases dramatically. You need to teach them what a roofie is. You need to teach them all this kind of stuff because they need to know the situation that they're in in a high school level as they're leading off into a college world or a military world or a business world. And we need to constantly talk about how it's portrayed in the media. We need to constantly be discussing with people, hey, this, that, that's not how that really works, by the way. You know, how they're, you know how that looks right there where they're all running around with each other and they're all friends still? i never seen that happen in my life. Because guess what? Hollywood makes things up. Hollywood's the land of make-believe. All those sex scenes and everything that these kids are watching are all choreographed and planned and angled and everything. It's not real. And we can't be basing our sexual lives off of something that's ridiculous and not true. And we need to help our kids see and understand that this stuff is lying to you. And so we engage and we talk and we build and we answer questions. I know this is a lot of information, but in the close, hey, I just want to challenge you to consider two things. One 
is to get this book. It's called Teaching Your Children Healthy Sexualities by Jim Burns. It gives you plenty of information. If you're like, I don't even know where to begin, here's a good place to begin. Read it, begin to have those conversations because that's my second challenge. This summer, whether it's the conversations that we've talked about from health and faith and technology, you need to begin this conversation about sex. The world is talking about it. They're not gonna leave us alone. It's time for you to be talking about it as the parents. You're like, but I'm not first in. That's okay. At least you need to be in. And it's an opportunity to dispel lies. It's an opportunity to increase, um, increase those opportunities, whether it's with your grandchildren or your children, your nieces, your nephews with permission. You have this grand opportunity to press in and make a difference. And I want to encourage you guys to do so. You're going to build a generation that's going to be more ready for this subject than others because the church has woken up and we're ready to start talking. Amen? Let's pray. Dry your heads with me. Now, as we sit here for one minute, I just want to give you a chance to just talk to God. Some of you, you know, this can be a really guilt-ridding or shame-building conversation because, you know, you, you, you've, you've had sex in the past and you've done things that you're not proud of and it just drudges up all that guilt, drudges up all that shame. And I just want to give you a minute now to talk to, talk to your God if you're a Christian. If you have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, God's available. He's already whisked away that guilt. And I want to allow you a minute to just make it right with him. To just spend that time in talking and confessing. So that the Lord can just enable you and bless you to move on. You know, you may be in here today, though, and you may not have a relationship with God. He may seem super far from you. He may be some, this guilt just seems so overbearing and overwhelming. I want to let you know that God is not done with you, though. That sin may keep you from having a relationship with him, but what God has done is he sent his son Jesus to bear your sin on the cross and to take it away so you can be forgiven and have that intimate relationship with God. But now it's, it's with you to make a decision to allow Jesus to take it away so that you can be cleansed of your guilt and your shame. And if that's you today and you need to receive that gift and you need to begin that journey with a relationship with God, I want to give you a chance right now to receive what Jesus has done for you and to forgive you that sin. And if that's you and you know you need that because you don't have any other answer on how to deal with that past, I want to give you a chance. Just put your hand up. You're saying, that's me. And I want to pray with you right now. And you're saying, absolutely, I need what Jesus has for me to forgive me of my sins. I'll give you a minute as you talk to him. If he's calling you, just put that hand up, and I want to walk you through a prayer. And God, I just want to lift up these parents in this room today. I want to ask that you'd bless them. I want to ask that you'd empower them with the sake of of this message so that they can go to their children and, and go to their grandchildren and those they influence and be ready to have those serious conversations without fear. God, remove all of those lies and all those fears that can hold them back. I pray that now you would empower us for the sake of our children, for the sake of your kingdom. Thank you, God, for this time. We ask your blessing on it in Jesus' name. Amen.